This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dafrin Johan. The temporary ceasefire in Gaza has ended. Israel has continued its process of genocide and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. In the first 24 hours since the ceasefire ended, Israel killed 700 innocent Palestinians. Israel has killed more than 20,000 people since the 7th of October, including journalists and medical personnel. 1.7 million people have been displaced. Just to keep in mind that the violence did not begin on the 7th of October, Israel has engaged in ethnic cleansing and settler colonialism in Palestine for more than 70 years. The question is, where do we go from here? How can peace and justice in Palestine be achieved when they are going up against not just Israel, but Israel with the full backing of the strongest military and economic might in the world, the United States of America? Joining me on the show today is Steven Sizer. He's a Palestinian rights activist, a former priest, and the founder and director of Peacemaker Trust, as well as Saul Takahashi, professor of human rights and peace studies at the Osaka Jogakuin University. Steven, Saul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. Saul, let me start with you. Um, you know, I, I had you on um, exactly a day after October the 7th, so a lot has happened since then. Um, including um, over the past week or so, a, a temporary ceasefire. Uh, unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire has ended. A new truce deal wasn't secured, and Israel has pretty much resumed bombing Gaza and their ethnic cleansing. What are your thoughts on the ceasefire that had taken place, and where are we right now? How do we understand this moment in time? There is very little doubt in my mind that uh, certainly for the for the Israelis, the ceasefire was always going to be temporary. Mm. Um, the fact of the matter is, I think that the Israelis don't really have much of a strategy right now. Uh, they started uh, their attacks, uh, you know, immediately after the Hamas attacks. Um, right at, at that point, um, at the get go, the strategy was very clear. Their objective was to drive everybody out of Gaza into the Sinai. Uh, make sure they didn't come back, and so there, thereby sort of complete the Nakba process, at least in, in the region of Gaza. And that was the objective. The Americans were dumb enough to agree to uh, sort of pay for part of it, it seems. But uh, the Egyptians wouldn't play ball. The Egyptians said no, uh, which was pretty predictable, I might add. Um, so, you know, they're, they're a little bit stuck now. Uh, I think certainly there are elements within uh, within the Israeli sort of elite. Uh, certainly, the, I think the military might be pushing to continue on with that and pushing, you know, the majority of the population of Gaza have now that they've evacuated. They've been forcibly displaced essentially to the south. And uh, they are saying the Israelis are saying that they're going to start attacking the south and start a ground defensive in the south. And the objective, you know, just might be to just push them towards Rafa, uh, and just uh, you know, just just, just make, create a situation where the Egyptians really cannot say no. Um, uh, in fact, uh, I just received actually just like an hour ago, I received information that flyers were being uh, uh, dropped 
um, in Gaza, basically telling everybody in the south to move towards Rafah, which is the city, you know, the, the town right near the border with Egypt. So, you know, it, it appears that that might still be the objective. But, you know, besides that, really, uh, I think they're just trying to kill as many people as they can and sort of hope for something to happen that they can that will allow them to declare victory. It seems like they really have very little of a strategy here except to use brute force. And when that brute force doesn't produce the results they want, they just use more brute force. But really what we've been seeing, you know, ever since the get-go has been just a litany of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and frankly, you know, genocide. I mean, that's really what is going on here. It's been... Uh, Really, really terrible what's been going on and infuriating that the international community hasn't been able to take any meaningful steps towards preventing it. Stephen, how would you describe the current humanitarian situation happening in Gaza and in Palestine as a whole? Um, you know, um, Saul brought up genocide. Um, you know, I mentioned ethnic cleansing. How do you contextualize what's going on right now? It's difficult to find the words to describe the, the even our own emotions about what we see of the devastation and the uh, brutality of Israel's um, bombing of Gaza, of hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, half the homes uh, in in uh, in Gaza completely destroyed. So it's uninhabitable in the north, and the prospect of that uh, being replicated in the south um, is 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 just as inconceivable. Um, but it's, it seems as if it's a reality. And under the, um, if you like, under the smokescreen being created in Gaza, they give, seem to be giving free reign to settlers in the occupied territories, the West Bank, mm -hmm. to um, commit acts of violence and aggression and threats against isolated Palestinian communities, homes, villages, farms, with the same intent to uh, ethnically cleanse as much, if not as all, of what they regard as uh, their sovereign territory to to minimize the number of people, maximize the amount of land. So I regard this as a, a calling it a humanitarian crisis sounds almost um, uh, superficial. It's much much worse than that. It's a sign that the world really doesn't care. It's not that the world cannot intervene. The world is choosing not to intervene. Um, calling for ceasefires, uh, calling for pauses, uh, is, is merely postponing the torture and the agony which the Palestinians are facing. Uh, I go through my mind that if we stood in the way of the Zionist agenda, they would treat us just the same way they're treating the Palestinians in Gaza. Nakba is such a profound moment in, in Palestinian memory and history. It was the first major ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people and the establishment of the Jewish state, um, known as Israel. But over the past month, Israel has taken more Palestinian lives than the Nakba itself, displaced more people than the Nakba. Uh, how do you see that, um, Stephen? How do you make sense of it? Are we witnessing in real time a sort of second Nakba? Yes, we are, because it's always been the declared aim of the Zionists to take the land which they believe God has given them from Egypt to the Euphrates, um, certainly from the river to the sea, they seem to have a monopoly on that expression, <laughs> um, and to minimise the 
uh, the, the indigenous people in it. The only reason there are Palestinians living in Israel today, places like Nazareth and Northern Galilee, is because they, they crept back in uh, after being expelled into Lebanon and Syria, you know, under, under threat of being shot on sight. The, the community in Nazareth, which is largely uh, Christian, um, were held under military detention right into the 1950s, uh, long after the founding of the State of Israel. So Israeli-Palestinians are regarded as second-class citizens. Those in the West Bank are held under military uh, rule, under military occupation. And uh, in Gaza, they're just being obliterated. So it's three different strategies, if you like, of, uh, of the Nakba to make life intolerable for Palestinians and to force them to leave. I really want to sort of second what yeah. uh, Stephen has already said, has just said about the Nakba. I mean, frankly, the Nakba has never ended. I mean, it's a continuing process that is integral to Israel as a settler colonial state. You know, this, Israel is a settler colonial state, and like all settler colonial states, it relies on a system of apartheid to maintain, um, you know, it's the supremacy of the colonial race over the indigenous race, the indigenous population, i.e., the Palestinians. And it, the, the 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 objective, the the ultimate goal is genocide. The ultimate goal is to drive everybody off their land and and kill them if they don't want that. And just to completely eradicate the indigenous population and take over the land for themselves. That's really what this is about. And, you know, Stephen said it, you know, he, he, he nailed it right on the head. I mean, it's, you know, the, you have the people in the, the 48 Palestinians, the Palestinians with Israeli citizenship living in what is now the state of Israel. Uh, the people of the West Bank, the people of Gaza. Of course, the people in East Jerusalem have their own, uh, you know, are also, you know, treated very poorly and have their rights violated at every turn. And of course, then there are the refugees who have their right, internationally recognized right to return, uh, rejected and prohibited by the state of Israel. So it just goes to show the, um, you know, the impunity with which Israel has acted really from from the onset, from the get-go uh, and uh, the lack of accountability uh, for for these grave human rights violations that Israel has uh, enjoyed, we talk about Palestinians in in Israel and in um, in the West Bank, uh, but the reality is they are living in isolated Bantustans or ghettos. Um, for example, in the occupied territories, you've got Ramallah, Janine, Hebron, uh, East Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Tulkam. They are isolated pockets. Uh, of, of urban dense uh, uh, centers. Bethlehem, we still talk about Bethlehem, but it's only about an eighth of the size of Bethlehem from 1967. They've taken all, all the land around the urban center. They've stolen it, built their settlements, a ring of settlements around the city so that Bethlehem cannot grow. Bethlehem cannot expand. So as a new generation of, of, of Bethlehemites are born and, and grow up, where do they go? They have to leave in order to get a job um, or marry someone outside of uh, Bethlehem, and then they can't come back. So the intent, I liken it to the way the heat evaporates water on your car after, uh, after a storm. The, the, the little pockets of water gradually get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I feel we're in a situation like uh, the Native Americans in North America, the Aborigines in Australia, the Maoris, we, we romanticize about these uh, these peoples, these indigenous peoples. They're still alive. They still exist, but uh, in, in isolated reservations. Uh, 
in, in poverty, uh, in ignorance, in you know, lacking basic necessities. Uh, that's, that's where we're headed with Palestine, unless we, the international community, uh, take robust action against Israel in terms of boycotts, divestment, sanctions, uh, punitive sanctions, war criminal investigations against every Israeli uh, uh, military official and uh, politician who are complicit in these war crimes. So let's dive into that. Let's dive into what a free and liberated Palestine would look like. Not just free, but but a, a justice for Palestinians. I think that is an important component that we cannot ignore. Um, let's discuss the end goal and then work our way back um, and discuss how we can get there. Saul, what does a free and liberated Palestine mean? I mean, the first thing I want to say is yeah, I'm always a little bit <laughs> um, hesitant about uh, sort of saying these kind of things or advocating for a particular model just because I'm obviously I'm not Palestinian. So <laughs> and, and the Palestinian people have lived, you know, for for decades, centuries, really, well, centuries um, being told by other people what they should do with their land. So right. I, I feel I always feel a bit hesitant about that. But of course, I have my views and my opinions. Um, first of all, the, the two-state solution, which we've heard over and over and over, is this mantra that we keep on hearing being repeated over and over and over by our so-called political leaders and by many opinion leaders as well, um, is you know based on a complete and fundamental injustice, and it, that has to be you know recalled. Um, the two-state solution. I mean, there are sort of variants of it, but uh, immediately preceding this, but the UN. Um, the newly created UN uh, in 1947 basically uh, passed the partition resolution, passed a partition resolution, basically give, outlining a proposed uh, solution for what was deemed to be the Palestine question at the time. Now, at the time, you know, uh, 93% of the land of Palestine was owned by Palestinians, and over two-thirds of the population were Palestinians. And yet the UN comes out, they, you know, they come trotting out and they say, okay, we have this great idea for you. Why don't you just, you know, split the country in two between you, the indigenous Palestinian population, and uh, basically want you to give over half of your country to, to these, you know, colonizing settlers coming from Europe. That's really what it was about. And that has formed the basis of this kind of default option, the two-state solution that international officials and, and, and you know, government officials and, and, and politicians that just keep on repeating over and over and over. Um, and and it, I think it's, you know, it, it's important to recall that this is based on a fundamental injustice. In any case, the two-state solution, as envisioned in various points of time, is completely impossible and irrelevant now because of the quote-unquote facts on the ground that the Israelis have created. Um, throughout the West Bank are these Israeli colonies. Um, essentially, they come in, they steal the land from the Palestinians, and they create cities in which only Israeli Jews are allowed to live. I mean, it's that simple. These are colonies. And then surrounding those colonies are vaguely defined secure zones and all these kind of things which the military, you know, manages and and you know, that's another way of stealing land from Palestinians. So, you know, the two-state solution, like Stephen has already said, I mean, because of these uh, because of these colonies essentially dotting the West Bank, throughout the West Bank, you have a situation where there is no sort of contiguous Palestinian land. I mean, it's all sort of bantustans separated from each other. So there's no way this could be a country in any way, shape, or form. It's just impossible. It's, it's a joke to talk about the two-state solution. And frankly, over the past couple of years, 
uh, I think that's become widely recognized, not just you know within commentators and independent uh, commentators in academia, but certainly within policy people as well. And slowly but surely, uh, the realization has started to uh, creep forward, creep through that you know the one state solution is really the only viable answer. Uh, often called the ODS, the one democratic state, and I'm also uh, involved a little bit in, in in those kind of discussions, but. Um, you know, like you just said, I mean, it's important to 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 talk. You know, to, when we talk about an ODS, one democratic state, um, there's still a lot of thinking that has to be done as to what exactly this would look like, and you know, nobody really knows yet. But when we look at South Africa after the um, after the dismantling of apartheid in South Africa, I think two two steps that were made in South Africa that didn't go well. Um, sort of point to the direction in which Palestine should, you know, we should learn from that and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes. Uh, and one is what you just said. Uh, the first one is what you just said. There has to be justice. There has to be justice for past violations. And the South Africans kind of blew this in, 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 a, in many ways. You know, they had these truth commissions where people who violated human rights could come and they could confess their sins. And that was that was something. But the thing is, the deal was that they wouldn't be prosecuted if they did that. So that was uh, a problem. Uh, and the other thing is that economic power was not, it remains even till now in the hands predominantly of the white population. So there was no sort of thing, there was no sort of, there was no sort of, you know, readjusting or, or redistributing the economic wealth uh, to the indigenous population, and that was that was you know that was the deal really that in dismantling apartheid, but so that is you know another thing that really I I feel strongly needs to be would need to be addressed. You know, a lot of people like um, Saul mentioned they like to parrot this two-state solution, two-state solution. And, you know, back in the day, it, it started to gain traction. And even the PLO, the, the Palestinian Authority, they came out, they acknowledged the state of Israel and, and so on and so forth. But the thing is, even with all of that, Israel didn't comply. To whatever that agreement was, Israel never complied. For decades before October 7th, October 7th this year, they've engaged in settler colonialism. They have kicked Palestinians repeatedly out of their houses, take their homes, take their land with complete impunity, no consequences whatsoever. So is this two-state solution? Should we just stop talking about it? Because even if there was such a thing, um, many agreements have come and gone. Israel doesn't follow through on it. When people talk about uh, to October the 7th, um, they blame Hamas, particularly in the West. Right. My comment to that is, oh, you're beginning with series nine, you know, TV series. What right. about series one to eight? Right. One has to go right back to um, the early Zionist movement to realize where this is coming from. We, we are seeing, if you like, series nine of a continuing program. Um, goes back to uh, Britain's mandate, Britain's control as the, as the world, leading world power in the Middle East. We promised the Jews a homeland in the British Empire. That's all we promised them in the Balfour Declaration, <laughs> because we needed uh, Jewish help to help defeat the Ottomans. We needed their money. We needed the Arab armies to help defeat the Germans. So we promised the land two ways, with, to, the, to, the, to the Jews, or a land, it was never defined, and we promised to respect the civic rights of the Arabs. But two years earlier, we'd already promised the French we're going to keep it to ourselves. 
in the secret Sykes-Picot agreement. So we promised the land three ways. So from 1917 right through to 1948, both sides were waking up. The Arab nationalists, the independence movements, the Zionist uh, terror organizations, both sides began to attack the British because we were not delivering Palestine to them. And so the partition plan, which led to the um, formation of the State of Israel, the recognition of the State of Israel by uh, the United Nations, was a cynical ploy by Britain to find a way out and force both sides to fight each other so that it was an exit strategy. So if you look at the partition plan, it's like a chessboard, six squares, six squares vertically, two, 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 white, black, black, white, white, black. They said to the Jews, you can have three of those black squares and the Arabs, you can have three white squares. But as you know, on a chessboard, none of the squares touch each other. Right. They're not contiguous. So the Jews were being given northern Galilee. That's, if you like, the top right square. Then they were given the Mediterranean, which is the middle left square. And then they were given the Sinai, which is the bottom, bottom right square. And the, and, the, and the Palestinians were given the top left, middle right, and bottom left. So they were forced to fight each other. When the... Um, United Nations recognized the, the state of Israel. It was conditional on the right of return for Palestinian refugees. Israel reneged on that. So the, the two-state solution we're stuck with now is the consequence of those three squares, which were not contiguous then. In '48, Israel took the whole of the Galilee and all of the Sinai, leaving Gaza and leaving the West Bank because Jordan took it. In 67, they took the West Bank from Jordan, the Syrian Golan from Syria, and Gaza from Egypt, with the intention of claiming and populating those areas too. So what is the solution? Israel is like a little child, gone to see its grandmother. Grandmother gives him the sweet jar and says, have a sweet. The kid puts his hand in the jar and grabs three sweets. He can only have two, but Israel's got its hand on the three, Hand is stuck in the jar, can't enjoy them, but it's got them, and it won't let go. What are the three sweets? It wants to be a Jewish state, wants to be a democracy, and it wants all the land. And it's got to give up one of those three. The two-state solution says give up the West Bank, 67 borders, and you can be a Jewish democracy. And Palestinian Israelis can either live as a minority in an Israeli state, or they can move to the West Bank and live in a Palestinian state. The illegal Jewish settlers can either live under Palestinian rule in the West Bank or they can move back to Israel. That's a two-state solution. Will Israel give up the settlements? No. They've stolen the best land in the West Bank. They're never going to give it up. What's the alternative? Give up being a Jewish state. Equal rights. Equal rights for Jews and Palestinians in one democratic state. That's the alternative. That's the only peaceful alternative to the scenario we're faced with today. But will Israel give up being a Jewish state, a, give, a state that gives preferential rights to anyone in the world who's Jewish to come and live in Israel, that denies those rights to Palestinians? Do you, will they allow six to seven million Palestinian refugees to return and become a majority in this one democratic state? No way. So if they won't give up being a Jewish state, they won't give up the land, what's the alternative? they're not a democracy. It's an apartheid state. That's why we've got to 
pressure Israel through boycotts, divestments and sanctions to choose one of the other two in agreement with Palestinians. We, we can't do this over the heads of the Palestinians. It's got to be a, a lasting uh, peace, but it's got to be based on justice for all. The only alternative, God forbid, is a, a violent one, an Islamist state or a, or a strengthened Jewish state, apartheid state because of the intervention of America on her side, uh, or no state at all because they've all been wiped out. You know, we want to avoid those apocalyptic military solutions and go for one of the alternatives to an apartheid state. On the show with me today is Stephen Sizer, Palestinian rights activist, a former priest and the founder and director of Peacemaker Trust. Also on the show with me is Saul Takahashi, professor of human rights and peace studies at Osaka Jogakuin University. We continue this conversation after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dafrin Johan and on the show with me today is Stephen Zeiser, a Palestinian rights activist, a former priest and the founder and director of Peacemaker Trust, as well as Saul Takahashi, Professor of Human Rights and Peace Studies at Osaka Jogakuin University. Gentlemen, a large part of the problem um, is that Palestinians have the moral high ground. As far as I'm concerned, there's no questioning who's the aggressor and who's the victim, but they lack power, either economic power or military power. We live in a capitalist, imperialist world in which the United States is on top and they've given unconditional support to Israel, which is essentially their military base in the Middle East to exert power over the Middle East. Now, we have also seen how the United Nations have pretty much zero real power when going up against the United States. For example, we've seen vote after vote where most of the world, hundreds of countries, support a ceasefire and you just see two, three countries, including the US and Israel. And, and, and because of that, it, the vote doesn't go through, right? Even if it's 150 against two, the vote doesn't go through. So really, what would it really take to achieve peace and justice for Palestine a nation with no military um, going up against the most powerful military in the Middle East, a rich, technologically advanced, genocidal country with the full backing of the biggest economy and military power in the history of the world. How do we get there? It's, it's not that hard. It's not rocket science. I saw a lovely um, uh, nature program this week about SEALs on the ice being chased by uh, by sharks, <clears throat> by whales, whale sharks. And, you know, you take one whale shark uh, attacking a, a flock of seals and he's going to pick one off uh, and then another one, then another one. And this was going on for about uh, an hour. And then suddenly it switched and all of the seals gathered together and they began to chase the whale shark away. They had little teeth in little mouths. The whale shark had a big mouth. The issue was he could grab one seal, but two or three hundred seals could all take a small bite out of the whale shark. And it was the whale shark that fled. Yes, the United States is if probably the most powerful country in the world in terms of its military might, its, its military uh, presence in the Middle East. But it's only like the whale shark. I envisage a day when the 
United Nations. Remember, the United Nations is itself a colonial enterprise. Why do we have a Security Council where one country can veto the will of all of the other nations in the United Nations? Simply because they were there first, one of the so-called superpowers. I, I, would, I would be urging the global south to, to, to work with other nations around the world. The majority have already recognized Israel. Uh, sorry, recognized Palestine. If they all ganged up on the United States and said, we will bring the United Nations to its knees, we will not cooperate with you on any uh, military, economic uh, deals. You remember what happened when, when the Gulf states worked together to shut down the oil? It caused uh, calamitous implications all around the world because they put the price of oil through the roof. They, you know, we can do it. The smaller countries can work together to neutralize the injustice, uh, uh, the greed, the selfishness, the pride, the arrogance that goes with uh, the United States and Israel's coalition today. Saul? Yeah, I completely agree with Stephen. I, I mean, I think the you know the role of the so-called global South is is integral to this, really vital. You know, and I'm guilty of this too when we talk about the international community, so so to speak. You know, often what's in our mind is really you know the powerful Western countries, the influential Western countries, but you know that's not the whole international community by a long shot. And even you know even with what's happening in Palestine right now, a lot of the, the southern countries have been you know very vocal and very uh, critical of what's going on. Not to mention critical of clear and obvious double standards that the West has been exerting you know vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine versus Palestine. But there's been a lot of criticism of this even from the governmental level. But also, you know, even within the West, I mean, it's it's. I think you mentioned this, but Israel really has lost the battle for uh, for public opinion. Really, you know, lost the battle of narratives, so to speak. And that's you know because people see people see what's what's been going on, and, and they see it in real time with social media and with all these messaging apps and you know and everything. And that, that's precisely why Israel takes out the electricity every time it, you know, engages in a military offensive on Gaza because it doesn't want the rest of the world to see what it's doing. But it's futile. And the writing really is on the wall, even within the United States. I mean, you know, the the, the shift in public opinion, especially of the younger younger people, is very, very clear. And, you know, we see this, we've been seeing this humongous groundswell of support for the Palestinian cause all throughout the Western countries. It's really the political elite. It's the, you know, it's the ruling class, so to speak, that is really, you know, full throttle together with Israel. The rest of the people are not behind them at all. And, you know, that that really means things are going to change, whether they're going to change, you know, over the next few years, I don't know, or whether it will be five years, 10 years, I really don't know. But I am actually pretty optimistic. Um, you know, the Berlin Wall came down very suddenly, nobody foresaw. And it could really, you know, there could be very, very dramatic changes for the better. I, I actually am pretty optimistic. I know it's a terrible time to be saying that. And terrible things, you know, are, are happening. But uh, it's, I mean, to, it's, it's a cliche to say that it's always darkest before the dawn and all that. But it is, I, I do feel that we've reached a point where, you know, it's it's just going to give. Really, it's going to give. And and things are going to change. Shall we? Stephen, do you sense that the, the scales are tilting? And because we are seeing waves of protests 
in the hundreds of thousands, week in, week out, um, in, in the West, right, United States, UK, even in Germany, France, this is against their own governments. Um, despite the, the ban on protests, despite people losing their jobs because of speaking out, it hasn't um, halted the momentum of the people. I was talking to someone from the Socialist Alliance in, the, in Australia, and she, stopped, she told me how, um, you know, they've never seen anything like this in a long, long time. It's so unprecedented where all the progressive voices of various causes are coming together. It's such a, a multi-ethnic coalition that is being formed. Unions, after so many decades, are taking an internationalist approach again. Um, all of this is unprecedented, but is it helping to tilt the scales because it seems like Biden and, and Macron and, and many others, right? They, they're just, it's business as usual, at least from my vantage point. How do you see it? The way that we've been created by God is such that we're all unique, but at the same time, we all have the same, uh, the same, um, the same physical organs, the same mental um, uh, faculties. And something deep, deep inside us is able to discern right from wrong. We don't need to be a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian to know that killing a pregnant woman or depriving um, premature babies of, of food and oxygen um, is, is, is wrong. Um, you know, forcing so, uh, uh, hospital staff and doctors to leave patients behind is repugnant. We know things are right and wrong. And, and therefore, I think that, that's the reason ordinary people are coming out onto the streets. Um, the other observation I've made is that Israel uses disproportionate retaliation as the means of exerting its declining influence. It's becoming more extreme because you have to increase the pressure in order to have the, the same effect you had previously. I'll give you an example. Uh, until about 15 years ago, everyone knew what anti-Semitism was. Anti-Semitism is prejudice, hostility, hatred toward Jews because there are Jews. And we know what happened with the Holocaust. We know, uh, the, you know the, the terrible things that were done against Jewish people, not just by the Nazis, but in previous centuries uh, in, in Christian nations in Europe. We know what the, the Turks did in the Ottoman Empire toward the Armenians. Um, but the, the, the Zionists refused to allow others to use the word Holocaust. Theirs was unique. And it's reserved only for them. So they fought tooth and nail to keep that word associated with their suffering and not other people's suffering. But in order to continue to use the threat of anti-Semitism against its critics, they know that people like Saul and I are not anti-Semitic because we don't hate Jews. We work with Jews. We, we respect Jewish academics. We respect uh, Jewish human rights organizations and, and so on. So they've had to redefine anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel. Their logic is Israel's a Jewish state. You criticize Israel, you're criticizing Jews, it's anti-Semitism. So they are diluting anti-Semitism. They are, if you like, shouting louder and louder and louder, but all the time everyone knows they're wrong. So it's like when you're having a discussion with someone, when they raise their voice, when they don't answer your questions, when they get angry with you, you know you've won. Right. If you get stopped by the police in the in the road for speeding, you see the blue lights behind you. You pull over. 
the police officer comes to your, your window. He doesn't shout at you. He doesn't raise his voice. He says, may I see your driving license, please? Do you know why I've pulled you over? You're the one shaking because he represents authority and you know you're in the wrong. That's what Israel's position is now. It's desperate to reclaim uh, the absurd notion that it's the only democracy in the Middle East. What's happened in Gaza shows it's not a democracy. You know, it's not the bastion of civilization. They've lost it. The question is how long it takes for the world to respond. What are the roles of the Arab states in all of this, Saul? Because they recently held their OIC, which is the Organization of uh, Islamic Cooperation Conference, and uh, critics on the progressive side, people in general, um, citizens of their own country, other countries, uh, Global South, looked at it and were rather disappointed overall with the, um, you know, with the kind of muted response. Um, nothing very strong, um, no very, you know, uh, very earnest and sincere condemnation. There seems to be this, you know, walking on on an eggshells type of approach. Um, what are the roles in, in the Arabs, uh, of the Arab states in all of this? Um, how can they um, put pressure um, um, to get us to, to a point of peace and justice? I, I think they, certainly the Arab states uh, have a potentially large role that they could play. Um, and like, but like you rightly say, they're, they're not playing it now. Um, and I think there are a lot of factors behind this, uh, certainly not the least of which is that the governments in most of the Arab states are, are not representative of in any way, shape or form of their people. You know, I mean, we look and see what's happening in, in the United States and in Western Europe and, and Australia, where, they, like I mentioned before, the political elite, the ruling class have completely gone haywire. And there, there's this huge distance between them and the people. And it's the same, you know, it's the same picture in the Arab states. Really, you know, many of the, the Arab states, in fact, started cozying up with Israel right. even more after the so-called Arab Spring, after they managed to sort of repress these rebellions that were happening in their own countries. And they realized, hey, Israel has all these nifty little tools to help us do that in the future. And we can sort of model all our sort of security and surveillance uh, stuff on these guys as well. So, you know, that's really one of the reasons that they started cozying up to, to them even more. But, I, you know, again, the, the so-called Arab Spring, you know, didn't result in, in much of dramatic change in, in an immediate sense. But this is a process and it's a it's a long process, which could take a long time. And it definitely is, you know, that was a major stepping stone, I think, in towards what towards the big change that we will see happening. So I am, you know, I am again, I'm optimistic. I do think there will be a, a very dramatic and very positive change coming soon. Stephen, um, you know, like Saul mentioned, um, it's not just in the West, even in the Middle East, you're seeing um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people protesting against their own rulers, against the monarchs, and and so on and so forth. Um, over the past decade, we've seen the the you know the various head of governments in the Middle East, you know, slowly try to naturalize relationships with Israel. Um, and and for the longest time, it seemed to be working. At this juncture where we are in right now, can they continue down that path? Will the people of the of the Middle East um, let their rulers do that? I'm 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 pessimistic on that issue, uh, simply from the reason that when you look at the countries surrounding Israel today, you've got Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and uh, and and Egypt. 
the historic approach to the Arab states by Israel and its benefactor, the United States, is to use either a carrot or a stick. And um, they, you know, they've been given a choice uh, to some extent. Um, and so Syria and Lebanon get the stick and, Car- and, and Jordan and Egypt get the carrot. I'll just give you an example. The second largest recipient of US aid after Israel is Egypt. Mm. Are you wondering why on earth would America be funding a country that was at war with Israel you know, with a, a previous generation. It's to buy them. The money goes to the uh, Egyptian army, to uh, significant individuals within the regime for their departments. It's a bloated economy dependent on significant external funding. And so the United States can, can persuade Egypt to take a million refugees from uh, Gaza if the price is right because anything can be bought with enough money. So it's a threat there that the money will be withdrawn if you don't do what we ask, or we will, we will fund it. And Israel clearly expects the United States to foot the bill for the uh, refugee community in Palestine, at least in the short term. So our, our Arab leaders um, are caught. They want to trade with uh, the United States. They want a good relationship. Uh, they are looking over their shoulder perhaps toward Iran, and, and nervous about Iran, they're nervous about internal dissent. Uh, therefore, they are keen to develop relationships with Israel and the United States. And, and so perhaps there'll be a pause in the Abrahamic Accords. But I think that the leaders, in order to maintain their own positions, they have to continue to suppress aspirations for democracy in their own countries in order to maintain links with the United States. Just one more example. Right. The United States... The pressure from the Christian Zionist lobby in the United States was to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem because no other country recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel apart from Israel. Right. But the U.S. moves its embassy. What does Donald Trump say when he describes it? He says, we, the U.S., moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. And for once, he was right. He was moving the capital because everyone else who wants to trade with America has to move their embassies there too. That's what's, you know, that's the agenda. By shifting and recognizing Israel's control over Jerusalem, it solidifies their, 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 um, their denial of an, a contiguous Palestinian state in the West Bank. So we've got to deal with America. We've got to find ways to neutralize American influence in the Middle East if we are to see the Arab states really come on board in the way that they should. And before we wrap this conversation up, would each of y'all have a final message for us? Where do we go from here? The question I would ask you as a listener is, what is your vision for your country? What is your vision, your hope for Malaysia? Is it a one-party state? Is it an ethnically pure country? Is it a country where you want your ethnic group to be dominant, influential, powerful, and the others just to go away or be subservient? Or do you see... Malaysia as a, a country where everyone is equal, respected, contributes. The, the country becomes strong because it's cohesive. It works together for the common good. That's my vision for my country. And that's my vision for Palestine, to see people living together, treated respectfully, equally in a one democratic state. 
And the reason I feel strongly about it is because that is the vision we find in our scriptures, whether it's the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian scriptures, or I believe in the Quran. It's, it's, it's a vision, a, a godly vision, where territory is seen as temporary. We're only here for a limited time, 70 years perhaps. It's a very short time. I'm 70, so I've, <laughs> I've done my time. But the vision is of sharing, the, sharing this world, sharing with one another, caring for the stranger, caring for the vulnerable, the weak, the orphan, the refugee, the elderly, because that brings out the best in our humanity, the best in our faith. And if that's our vision of the future, then that's what we should want for Israel-Palestine too. Saul? I just want to say, look, um, like you mentioned, the other side has power, uh, has you know, armed might, it has economic might, and it has political power. But we have one thing which they will never have, and that is the truth. You know, we are we are on the you know this. The, a lot of people are using this phrase now. We're on the right side of history. I mean, that's that's clear, and that's why you know, no matter what happens, we will win. We have to win here. And uh, you know, again, I don't know if it will happen immediately or if it will have, it will take a year, two years, five years, what I don't know. But I, I am I am very convinced that you know, because the truth is on our side, we will definitely uh, be victorious. And we will look to see a, we will see a peaceful and prosperous Palestine at some point. The arc of history bends towards justice. We just need to really yes, come indeed. together and pull it, pull it exactly. towards that way. Never, um, never give up because yeah. for sure we can, you know, continue to organize, continue to advocate for Palestinian rights. And, you know, we have the truth on our side. So we should be confident in that. Saul, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've been speaking to Stephen Sizer, Palestinian rights activist, a former priest and the founder and director of Peacemaker Trust, as well as Saul Takahashi, professor of human rights and peace studies at Osaka Jogakuen University. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.